The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. Hello, I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, more phone hacking revelations on the eve of News Corporation's annual meeting in LA, while profits boom at the company News Corp wanted to take over, B-Sky B. We ask what it all means for the Murdochs. Also in the podcast, Graham Norton returns to BBC One with his BAFTA-winning talk show. We talk to its executive producer and Norton's business partner, Graham Stewart, about how the show broke the mould. Plus, sweeping changes are unveiled to the UK's libel laws. Anonymous online posters prepare to reveal your true identity. And Ricky Gervais causes outrage on Twitter. It's all coming up on Media Talk from The Guardian. Here with me in the pod this week, I have Mr. Dan Saber, the Head of Media and Technology at The Guardian. Dan, another big week for the Murdochs? Oh yeah, isn't it always? And uh, also with me, sounding almost as enthusiastic, is uh, Helen Zaltzman. <laughs> Hello! I laid that is... on a bit thick, maybe. There you go. She is a writer and broadcaster and one half of the Sony award-winning Answer Me This podcast. Yes. Now, Helen, uh, I'm sure you've been following Ricky Gervais. Uh, not literally, I mean, due to the uh, restraining order. Yes, uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of his, and this hasn't really warmed me to him this week. Well, I shall ask you more about that later. Yeah, please do. Uh, we start this week with the Murdochs, who else, and the latest developments in the phone hacking scandal. A lawyer who acted for News International has alleged that James Murdoch knew its rogue reporter defence was untrue and misled MPs. Now, Dan, this all came out in evidence to the um, House of Commons Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee this week. That's right. <clears throat> Julian, Julian Pike from Farrers, uh, the Queen's lawyers no less, uh, used to be News Corp's lawyer as well for a very long time, defending all these phone hacking cases tooth and nail. And then, you know, there was a passing of the ways a couple of weeks ago, and then suddenly Julian Pike remembered all these things that he didn't get around to telling us at the time. Not least that when uh, Les Hinton said that offered this sort of there was only one rogue reporter only one journalist clive goodman engaged in phone hacking uh that in fact uh, actually that wasn't really true and he knew it wasn't true but he didn't say anything because he had obligations to his client you see but now he's decided to come out and, and reveal all yeah and i'm sure he won't be the last um and i guess this is the point or what's sort of dangerous for the for the murdochs uh in in over the coming months which is that uh, you know, the one sort of tight structure of sort of discipline, the, 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 the sort of tight organisation of News Corporation has broken down because so many people have left, lost their jobs, moved on, uh, seen their contracts uh, extinguished. And, and so people are, if you like, sort of, you know, loose um, and, and, and saying something close to what they really think. As, you, as you're hinting at there, it's not the first time that someone's accused James Murdoch of misleading MPs. Yeah, that's right. You're, uh, you're referring to um, Colin Miner, former editor of News of the World, and Tom Crone, uh, the former chief lawyer, both absolutely adamant that they told James Murdoch very clearly about this wonderful for Neville email in this uh, meeting, and I think in June of uh, 2008. The for Neville email is the email that suggests um, that phone hacking was more widespread than just the one reporter, Clive Goodman, I mentioned earlier, the Neville being Neville Thurlbeck, the, the chief reporter, and the and the email containing a transcript of, um, of phone hacked conversations that were that were uh, allegedly sent to uh, Thurlbeck, and so uh, this was a reason for settling the Gordon Taylor court case. I think it was about seven hundred fifty thousand pounds or so, all out for uh, uh, for News International, and that was what James Murdoch agreed to at a meeting. The problem is, of course, James Murdoch remembers it all differently and doesn't remember the Fenevel email or that phone hacking was more widespread than just a single rogue reporter. Simply that he had to pay out in the case. What we learned this week, on top of all that 
Wat was there may have been another meeting in May, a month before, between just Colin Myler, the News of the World editor, and James Murdoch on this, on broadly on this topic, and uh, and that Julian Pike was said he had to provide a briefing note and briefing information for it. Uh, well, that's quite interesting because it might suggest that again James Murdoch was briefed, perhaps, possibly, maybe about phone hacking being more widespread earlier than advertised. James Murdoch though says. He's got no memory of the meeting, and there's nothing in his diary. So lots has happened since Murdoch, Murdoch himself appeared before the uh, before the select committee, and he'll be coming back again in a couple of weeks. Uh, although he's got to get through, or the family have got to get through the News Corp annual meeting uh, on Friday. Of course. Now this is taking place on the Fox Studio lot in Los Angeles. It promises to be a lively affair, almost as exciting as an episode of Twenty Four, but that might that might date my knowledge of Fox TV shows. No, I think you're doing it right there. Beats the Simpsons, although that's still on Fox after a bazillion seasons. Is that a number? Uh, <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Because um, uh, yes, having the annual meeting of the Fox Fox lot in Los Angeles, which means it'll be six p.m. London time when it starts, conveniently outside the scope of the first editions of the newspapers. But look, uh, there are a lot of complaining shareholders. Uh, some even one influential shareholder lobby group saying that 13 of the 15 News Corp directors should be voted off the board. That's probably not going to happen, is it? Uh, probably, I think, uh, is, is, is an understatement. <laughs> it's definitely not going to happen. Rupert Murdoch has 40% of the votes. Uh, uh, that's what he owns or controls through the family trust. So he's not going to lose. Uh, but what we are going to look for is obviously the scale of the protest and more to the point what the kind of the, the drama is, if you like, the verbal fisticuffs. What will people say at the meeting? What will people say outside the meeting? We even got Tom Watson, a, uh, a very own British MP uh, flying out to uh, make a few points there himself so it promises to be well entertaining and it, you know as it should be if it's in on the fox studio lot in la uh, even if it doesn't promise to be decisive Helen, do you think it's going to be the, the second most humble day of rupert murdoch's life i think it really depends what kind of form wendy's on that day and uh, whether she's uh, willing to pull out any more athletic moves i'm not sure that rupert murdoch really does uh, humble he may say the word humble he doesn't appear humble does he ever Dan, what do you make? What do you think of um, ongoing speculation about whether James is going to succeed Rupert at the top? But uh, is, is Chase Carey now as firm a favourite as New, New Zealand are to win the Rugby World Cup? Uh, I think depending I would, on when you listen to this I podcast, I think I think New Zealand are more likely to win the World Cup than uh, Chase Carey is to take over. Uh, in other words, I think there's enough uncertainty there. Look. I, I think the idea that James Murdoch was going to smoothly take over from his dad has been, uh, you know, that idea I think has taken a sort of serious knock. Uh, he doesn't particularly have the support of Elizabeth. And remember, this is there's a family trust that controls the family block of share, so these things matter. Uh, dad seems determined to hang on, and I'm sure he's a young 80, but 80 is still a big number. And, uh, uh, you know, and there's still all this sort of continuing pressure and speculation as to sort of things that may come out in the UK. And, and, and as the evidence this week at the Select Committee from Mr Pike of Farrah's shows that there could be just sort of any number of small things drip, drip, drip could just contribute to the sort of destruction of, of James Murdoch's reputation. So I, I, the idea that he's going to succeed automatically to the top job at News Corp uh, doesn't look so likely right now. And more claims about this apparent rift between uh, between father and son with the New York Times claiming this week that, uh, that Rupert told James, you're coming back to New York or you're out. Yeah, big curtain raiser for the annual meeting from the New York Times. Didn't really tell us very much that was new. Went back about two to three years, you know, long piece, a lot of history. Maybe that's the New York Times way, I don't know. But it did have that one very good quote. 
uh, you know, come back to New York or you're out. I think what is what that's reflective of was the real worry that Rupert's running the company from New York with uh, with a team of very well established executives. But there's James and indeed Elizabeth in London building perhaps a parallel court and. You know, was the was the company being sort of effectively split in two? There's a lot of neurotic worry, I think, in in New York about that, and I think Rupert was acting to close that down. Whether he used those formal words or not, I don't know. But it's you know nicely dramatic, and you know, I'd, I'd like to believe it makes for a good story, doesn't it? Uh, and back in the UK, the third strand of our News Corp. Uh Top story this week is that BCIB reported a 33% increase in pre-tax profits, and that's disp- despite a slump in new TV subscribers. Not a slump, John. It was just, I think... Am I being harsh? I think they only added 26,000, so a slowing rate of growth. But there is a recession on. And I think, was it 10.2 million households have B-Sky-B, pay for Sky? And it's not cheap, Sky. That's kind of... It's not cheap. It's not... What is it? Average uh, average revenue, £535 a customer. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, spending a lot. Yeah, That's yeah. Four times the four license fees were. Yeah, well, maybe you don't have Sky, Helen, but but, I but don't. It's, <laughs> and you're not likely to that price, perhaps. But I think I think we've kind of half the sort of forty to fifty percent of the country is going to take have decided they're going to take Sky, and the rest, a little bit more than half, aren't. And that's kind of that particular line is drawn. But what Sky is doing really, really well at the moment is taking its existing customers and and selling them an internet package or HD or broadband, and that's the future for Sky, kind of you know, getting more and more money out of his existing customer base. It's probably well, yeah, because fo- they've saturated the market pretty much, haven't they, now? If they've got nearly 50%. Yeah, I think that's as far as, exactly so. I think that's as far as they can go pay television. But it doesn't mean there's, I think there's five years of good growth for Sky yet. So that, you know... I should uh, hang on to my share. You should absolutely hang on to your shed, although it depends which pri- what price you bought it at. But uh, look, it, this is the contradiction of the state of the Murdoch Empire right now. Uh, um, financially powerful, economically successful, um, many market-leading products, but huge, enormous reputational difficulties and con- dogged by accusations of, of, of not playing it 100% by the book on their way to the top. And it sounds like you're not a, well, you're not a Sky subscriber, but uh, how much has the whole phone hacking scandal kind of affected your perception of the company? It sounds like you're not going to be picking up the phone anytime soon to Sky been, customer services. <laughs> well, there isn't actually uh, the capacity in the area of London that I live in, so it's well, not there. even a choice I could make. But but uh, I feel vague resentment towards uh, Sky for buying up a lot of shows that I like, like all the HBO output and Mad Men and so forth anyway. But um, I don't think I would get anything done if I had that amount of television at my disposal all the time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Irrespective of the naughtiness that Rupert Murdoch's done, but to be honest, I think a lot of people didn't have a very high opinion of him before and still bought Sky because it was a product they wanted. So one will compromise one's principles as long as they don't interfere with your entertainment at home. You can't get Sky where you are. Does that mean you're, you're either underground or on the side of a very tall cliff facing the wrong direction? Yeah, that's okay. where I live, just I've underground got right. in a cliff. I live in a cave in Zone 3 of London. I knew that, thanks. Well, more on everything phone hacking related and the News Corp annual meeting, of course, at mediaguardian.co.uk. On now to some of the other stories making the media headlines this week. And first up, libel reform. In the week that Morrissey took his racism libel battle to the High Court, demanding that his case against the enemy be heard before a jury, a parliamentary group called on the use of juries in such cases to be all but abolished. It was one of many wide-ranging reforms proposed by the Joint Commons and Lords Committee on the draft defamation bill. 
Uh, Dan, there's, there's a good reason why libel trials don't usually involve a jury. Well, they're just too complicated and expensive. Uh, although I don't see why a jury can't manage. They manage. I, I, I watched um, uh, the Richard Desmond versus Tom Bauer libel trial. That was heard in front of a jury, and the jury sided you know, with Tom Bauer and not Richard Desmond. And I think the jury was perfectly able to make up its mind as to what was right and wrong. And they make a good watch, which is not the case of uh, many court cases. Uh, yes, yes, actually. Libel trials are quite entertaining, although I'm not entirely sure that justice and entertainment are should, should be two separate, two two related notions. <laughs> you know, otherwise we wouldn't feel outraged every time we watch the X Factor. But but the point is that there's other parts about defamation reform that are important. It's way too expensive for ordinary people to bring libel cases, even if you think they shouldn't. Wouldn't it be better if they went through a, a PCC that was effective? But anyway, um, uh, it's way too expensive. It's for all sides. It takes too long. It's too complicated. And one of the things that I think the parliamentarians are proposing this week is just much quicker and better mediation at an earlier stage and just a really sort of much simpler and cleaner process and that is absolutely critically important because if for media organizations if they do lose uh they are on the hook for big costs and damages and that's why london's become the liable capital of the world if you take a paper like the financial times you know they are being all sorts of oligarchs and uh, uh, and uh, oligopolists and other wealthy people and companies are looking to s- sue them in London because uh, they know they can get good good libel payouts and the FT might even back down at the first whiff of gunfire and that's that, you know that can't be right we've got to be a sort of a global centre for fair and accurate journalism and Helen I think it was especially interesting what the committee had to say about uh, online posts and changes there yes well what they one of the things they're suggesting is that people who put up libelous comments on uh, blogs hosted by say a blogger or wordpress that uh, Blogger or WordPress could be sued, which seems a bit to me like if someone defaced a copy of The Guardian and left it on a newsstand, The Guardian getting sued. Um, I don't think that that is going to make people stop putting inappropriate comments because, I mean, why would it when they have no personal responsibility? And the problem is that on the internet you can do pretty much whatever you want anonymously. And some people have suggested that in order to kind of lessen the uh, the number of these comments is that people would have to comment using their true identity through Facebook, uh, which I don't think is a bad idea, although obviously not everybody is on Facebook and you could sign up to Facebook using fake identities, but it's much more of a hassle to do that. But at the moment, it is just incredibly easy to do these things. But I think actually taking anybody to court over something they've said on there is uh, going to be very unlikely for a long time. Yeah, that's right. It says comments that are subject of a libel complaint uh, have to be have to be taken down unless the uh, author is prepared to identify themselves and sort of come out. Yeah, they're not going to do that, are they? They're not going to do that. And who's going to who's going to police this down? I mean, there's, a, there's enough moderators employed by newspapers already. This could solve the unemployment problem at a stroke. Uh, well put, uh, and, and and therein lies the problem. I mean, uh, how can you sue WordPress anywhere? WordPress is just some free software. I mean, it's just sort of you know given out by some developers. Are we going to yeah. go and harass the original developer? Uh, I, I mean, this is not this is a Nonsense. And I think the problem is that, you know, there is a problem, which is that how do you deal with the printed media as opposed to the online media and where do you draw the line? But uh, something that uh, I think Jeremy Hunt has been saying in private to newspaper editors about PCC reform, and I think he's right, is let's just solve the problem of press regulation. We know what the newspapers are and they are a category and we understand what it is and let's deal with that. And then let's deal with how we bring online into the system later on because. When as soon as you start talking about regulating online activity, you get into a whole load of problems, oh, and, you, it's a and you'll never come out. You'll never come out the other side. Yeah, I think instead of there being paid people to moderate these things, the best they can hope for at the moment is uh, just users, other users, flagging up 
inappropriate material. It's kind of what they do already on YouTube. You can get comments taken down, but it's a very inexact system. Sort of a self-regulation. Yes, sort of, but you're putting it in the hands of the very people that are bringing it down. TV ratings body Barb has revealed that 10% of TV viewing is now time-shifted. Uh, now, Helen, I don't want to um, I don't want to take issue with the good people of Barb and their set-top boxes, but I, th- I was underwhelmed. I thought it would be much more than 10%. Yes, well, I wonder whether the set-top box is not the greatest monitor. I'd be really interested uh, once they manage to gather the statistics from uh, online viewing. And uh, now that people can view you know, BBC Catch-Up and stuff through... Uh, you know, their various televisual boxes or games consoles. That's surely a much more accurate indicator than the bar box. With. The surveys, it just seems a, a bit dated now, doesn't it? And um, and also, I wonder whether they can get, uh, say, the BBC to give them the figures of viewing on their website. But obviously, people like on-demand viewing is what it's showing. Uh, and I agree with you that it seems... It seems a slightly anticlimactic figure, but I think it's only really reflecting one of the many means in which people do do online viewing, on-demand yeah. viewing. Well, every time I write the overnight story, Dan, it's, uh, I'm overwhelmed by comments, at least a dozen, from people telling me that overnights are redundant because everyone's watching it on time shifted. But this suggests not. Well, I think more people still watch overnights and on time shifting. Of course, it depends what the show is. I mean, if it's, I don't know, you know, live premiership football, it's a bit different from Mad Men. Uh, you know, and the, and the experience is different. But I, look, you, you could see how the mood is changing. I mean, look at the sort of, you know, drumbeat of complaints about uh, the amount of advertising in X Factor and Downton Abbey on a, on a Sunday night, which is people are have also got used to the notion that they'll skip, the, you know, they'll skip the ads. Uh, on a drama, on a, on a, on a favourite show. And so I think when people are actually watching live TV, they, they really are more conscious, I think, of the advertising when they see it. Um, Helen, if, if people uh, are ducking out of ads, you've always fast-forwarded through them on a, on a VHS, but um, the ability to do it on demand means that it's, it's undermining the very way that you, uh, you find commercial TV. Yes, I suppose. But then um, I watch a lot of uh, TV on online catch-ups, and there you often have to sit through the same ad about four times before proceeding to the programme, so there they've made it impossible to get through them. And also, you, know, you can just change the channel if you're watching uh, on normal television, so you can still avoid adverts if you're determined to. They're going to have to start doing a lot more product placement in Downton Abbey of Coke and, or something. And sponsorship, sponsorship where it's at. I always know who sponsors the latest series of Desperate Housewives. Oh, yeah, because you've sat through four ideas at the and beginning you, of the end. And you press play about uh, 20 what? seconds too late, and then you have to go backwards again. And you what don't is, actually t- save any time. Yes, what is Disarono? I definitely know that's something. I've, <laughs> is it a booze? I think so, yes. <laughs> and one piece of breaking news, which is Andy Parfit, the former Radio 1 controller, has uh, popped up in an unexpected place, which is... Sarchi and Sarchi Fallon is turned into an ad man. Yeah, so what's his job title again, John? He's going to be looking after uh, talent, I believe, across Europe, uh, Africa, and the Middle East. So just a small patch. <laughs> is that talent within Sarchi and Sarchi, or is that talent generally people I th- like? I don't know. I think he's attracting, attracting and nurturing. It's talent as in the gold coin from the Bible. I think so. So we look forward to So Joe Wiley is going to be joining him, and, 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 and presumably Chris Moyles will be, I don't know, He's been on breakfast a long time, hasn't he? Could, could get in a break in advertising, perhaps, job. I see him as an ad man, a creative. Yeah. So anyway, look, well, after all those uh, you know, tie-ups with you two and Coldplay, some might say Parfit's been in the advertising business some time. Well, boom, boom. I tell you Thank what, you though, very much. It shows you it's tough. Um, I tell you, tell you what it does show you, which is, look, the BBC, fantastic organisation, of course, but if you've got a senior job there and, you wanna, and you're going outside the organisation, that, that sort of question of where do you go, um, you know, it's not obvious you've got a set of skills for the commercial sector. Now, I mean, you know, Leslie Douglas got a job at Universal Music doing sort of special projects, if you like, which um, it sounds like she was put in the sin, you know, put in the sin bin. That's not true. But, you know, she hasn't sort of 
she's not nothing like as visible as she was. Andy's sort of taking his portfolio career in this sort of surprising set of jobs. And I think it's very hard to sort of find out what you're, you know, what you know. It's very hard to sort of step out of the BBC and into a, in, in, into an obviously sort of enhanced role, unless it's perhaps in an arts organisation, you know, like Tony Hall going to the Royal Opera House. More on all these stories at MediaGuardian.co.uk. Now, one programme I have a habit of time shifting is The Graham Norton Show, which returns to BBC One on Friday. I caught up with executive producer Graham Stewart and talked about the show and his 13-year business partnership with Graham Norton. Yes, it's a, it's a good feeling and uh, a strange one for us because, of course, we've been here before. Uh, we won BAFTAs at the, the start of the century and uh, now we're, uh, we're, we're back and, uh, and 13 years on, in fact, because the first Graham Norton talk show that he and I did together on Channel 4 was in July 1998 so 13 years on uh, we're still making them and uh, they're bigger than ever and Graham's better than ever and you've got to keep it fresh if it's 13 years down the line and one thing you've done is to uh, have all four guests or all three guests on at the same time on the BBC One show tell me how did that come about? Well it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that, that, that's evolved uh, for us over time we um, always would would if if we needed to have multiple guests on stage at uh, on the set at, at at any time, but when we came back to the BBC from Channel Four, um, we did a show called Bigger Picture, which was a, a more current affairs uh, show for Graham, uh, which was done at BBC One on Monday nights, and that had a group of people. Uh, together at one time that was it wasn't it was a talk show but but it was more a discussion show and it was obvious that that was a that worked well as a format uh talk shows have traditionally ended uh you know my early days working on shows like aspel that you would end with all the guests together but um our uh interesting and i think effective thought was let's start with them all together and it, it, we were always warned that the that, that, that particularly americans would be uncomfortable with it in fact they love it I wouldn't recommend it, though, to anyone to do because you have to be a pretty phenomenal host. Uh, it really is a ringmaster job, and uh, I think there's one person qualified in British television to do it, and he works here. Some yeah. of the best moments have been, I remember, uh, was been the interaction between the guests, uh, thinking particularly Vince Vaughan and uh, P. Diddy, if that's his latest incarnation. And it was with Sarah Millican, Sarah Millican is that right? Yeah, Sarah Millican, that's, that's right. And, and th- those are the moments when, uh, yeah, if you watch that show, you'll see that P. Diddy... Uh, apparently is not having a good time. In fact, he's being very, very cool. Um, but the combination of, uh, of Sarah Millican and, and uh, Vince Vaughan um, and the, the material they were talking about, and if I remember, it was um, uh, a sequence about farting, and I think farting during sex, that uh, broke the ice, if I could use that, uh, that, that phrase, with uh, P. Diddy. And that was just... That's, you, you know, it's hard to write that stuff. That that that, that just happens, and it, it worked really well. It feels like absolutely a natural home for Norton on Friday night BBC One. But what was it like um, taking over that slot from the from the taking over the chat show slot from from Jonathan? Well, it sounds trite, but we were of course working on Monday nights doing the show, and um, we felt we were doing a Friday night show. It just happened to be uh, in a different uh, day, so. Uh, we didn't change the show. We didn't have make any changes uh, uh, in format or style. All we did was we did the show and put it out on a Friday. It's a Friday show. It always has been a Friday show. We started on Fridays and four. Graham's a Friday night uh, talk show person. Circumstances and and the, you know they're they're well documented. Led to us uh, being there, and we're delighted. And it was reported earlier this year that you were being courted by ITV. Is is that? 
an interest that's ongoing? Uh, not ongoing. Uh, we, yeah, we were courted by them. We've been courted by lots of people. There were, there were several people in the frame. Um, and I'm, I've always said that, that uh, you know, the door is always open here. And I've had lots of nice lunches uh, with people, and I will continue to. Um, it's not that we're for sale. It's just that, you, you know, I, I'm always realistic and have been realistic that as, as time goes on, and Graham and I have agreed this, that it will become inevitable that, that, that scale will, will be the dominant factor and that, that you might have to be part of something bigger to survive. Uh, but we remain, and I, I would expect we would do for the foreseeable future, a proper independent. We are owned by nobody, uh, and we have been our own bosses for... Uh, for 10 years, it, it would take quite a bit to make, make me give that up. And you mentioned that you take nothing for granted, but how tough is it for the independent sector right now in the light of, for instance, the uh, cuts at the BBC and delivering quality first? It's, it's, it's incredibly hard. Uh, I sit on packed council and therefore I'm hearing firsthand just how the, the sector is, is coping and, and, and what it's facing. It's it's hard and it's getting harder. The the fact that that uh, the BBC, where you know we do a major part of our work and a lot of people do uh, most of their work, is is contracting is a is a worry. All I would say is that you have to be light on your feet. We, as I say, have been making shows in America. We are we've opened a Scotland division. We're we're we're, we're doing that. I think the indie sector. Uh, it's too easy for us to sit and complain. And people do, and I understand it, but it's too easy to do that. Uh, I think being proactive is, is the way forward. And, and at PACT, I watch very, very talented people be proactive and explain to other people how they should be proactive, and that's, to me, the way forward. I, I'm much more a positivist than anything else. Graham Stewart there. There's more on all these stories over on mediaguardian.co.uk where you'll also better see, if you wait until Monday, how many viewers watch the return of The Graham Norton Show. Some time-shifted viewing not included. Finally this week, to two of our biggest TV stars, making the headlines for rather different reasons. First up is Simon Cowell, the £200 million man whose X Factor just might be going off the rails. Um, Helen, it's lost 2 million viewers uh, compared to this time last year. Yeah. Uh, where's it all gone wrong or are we just expecting too much of the great man well do you not think that uh, regardless of the lineup change and so on it's the eighth series now of x factor that's around the time when people got sick of big brother maybe they've just had enough maybe it's time for a new kind of dominant entertainment other than the talent show on tv do you think the talent pool might be running thin as well? Dread thought after all these series and also Britain's Got Talent. Well, people just uh, aren't touched enough by the sob stories anymore, are they? And unless people are willing to go really quite dark for their sob story, maybe just they've moved on. And also, I, I don't really care for it because I'm not that interested in karaoke. It makes me feel melancholy that there are all these alumni of The X Factor that are built up for three months and then just are not likely to have any career. And there must be well over 100 of of them now surely and uh... a melancholic Saturday night what a sad thought yeah I'm going to break out the 10cc <laughs> Dan do you think uh, is it in the casting of the panel or is it in the casting of the contestants or as Helen suggests is it just old hat I think we're expecting too much and I think I mean the previous season was the biggest season yet and I think uh, you know for a long period this is a gravity defying show um, it's just lost its star I Simon Cowell's not you know, it's got abroad um, down two million. I think it's still the second best season yet. So uh, this was always going to happen. What's surprising is it's taken so long for it to sort of reach a peak and start trending down. I think the X Factor is far from finished, um, but it's just perhaps not quite as popular as it was. 
Um, they can tweak the judging again next year. Maybe we're setting the stage for a sort of you know heroic return of Cal as a chairman of the judges uh, towards the end of the run. I'm sure that's going to happen at some point. Because Cal's um, busy in the US, but if Lengo Goodman can commute, then uh, then so can the uh, oh, so can the big man. Oh, I save us. I think he can. Uh, you know, look, I think yes, I think Simon can co- come over for sure. Look, I, I, I'm not so, you know, I'm not so downbeat about it. But I think you know, ITV ought to start trying to think about some, you know, trying to get some other people to come up with some other ideas for formats two or three years down the line, but not just yet. Would the return of Cowell not admit to some failure? It's like when they biffed Cheryl from the American one. It, it made it look bad, even though the reasons are probably fine. Well, and then the American critics miss Cheryl, said she was the best thing about it. Well, knitting old searching a snow Cheryl, is she? Well, they're just grub. You know, no, some people are never pleased, though. Yeah, I think you've got a point, actually. In one sense, if Simon comes back too early with too many shows to go, then then you could argue, that, you know, you could certainly argue that would be a mission of failure. But I think to not have Cowell at all on the X Factor would also be very surprising. So I, I can't mm. see him not coming back for a few shows, you know, towards the end. And it'll all be, you know stage managed with no doubt with press headlines going you know cal rides in to save the x factor the sun and the mirror and although when he came back for britain's got talent nobody really was that pleased about it were they in the end they were just commenting that he might have had uh, lip injections (laughs) well all good copy (laughs) (laughs) what it needs i think is a wagner figure as louis would say because yeah. people complain about being a panto when it turns into a panto, but when it's not a panto, it's just a run-of-the-mill TV show. Yeah, you need some char- look. You need some characters. You need some people. You know. You know. You need some like Katie Weissel or you know something. You know, some sort of divisive sort of characters that Wagner. You know, the Jedward. You know, that the audience. You know, love to hate or 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 or, or, or you know have people sort of squabbling and the, the sofa. People who can't sing but are entertaining. That's what the show kind of needs. A bit like this podcast. <laughs> From one multi-millionaire TV star to another, see what I did there, is Ricky Gervais, who has caused a storm on Twitter with his repeated use of the word uh, mong. Uh, as you will probably know, uh, an offensive and dated reference to people with Down syndrome, Gervais has been trying to reclaim the word for some reason by using it as much as possible. Good monging, two mongs don't make a right. I won't carry on, my, my sides are hurting too much. Helen, what's, uh, what's Gervais playing out here? Well, I believe, John, that he's just trying to get attention in is he? his, is this, uh, in his usual way. Are we playing straight way. into his hands? Yeah, well, again... I'm, I know he's a listener. I'm, get in touch, Ricky. <laughs> well, if he is, I'm, I'm not a fan of his oeuvre, and it just seems symptomatic of the way that he is in his stand-up, where he says these things that are just dated, but he's acting like with... with because we're all liberal, it's fine to laugh at these things. And I don't think the English language is really missing the word mong. Um, I don't think saying that it's fine now because it's it's been such a long time since it, it meant the original meaning. It's an abbreviation for a word that is not acceptable to use. Uh, so I just... He's only been on Twitter a few weeks, so maybe he, he wasn't getting enough uh, rude comments. Tim, what, what do you think? Um... He's got a new sitcom coming up on BBC Two soon, Life's Too Short. Does it have any impact? Does it have any wider play on uh, his presence in the media? And, you know, uh, will the BBC start facing questions about should it be showing his show or should we um, should we just leave him to it and perhaps turn the other way? Well, uh, look, I think it's a bit too soon for the BBC to start getting panicky, although no doubt <laughs> two-thirds of the compliance department are already scanning Twitter with increasing nervousness as we, uh, as we, talk, as we talk or as we go to air. I mean... <sighs> 
not, he's always pushed the boundaries, isn't he? He's always been well, a... Well, uh, quite. I mean, I, I'm, it's boring, isn't it? I mean, language is a minefield. Political correctness is a bit boring. But if you can't be funny without resorting to these things, then you should really be trying harder. That might be yeah, the most I, offensive part of it. Is it's just not funny. Yeah, I, look, I, I might not find it massively funny, but I'm probably a po-faced Guardian journalist and I get everything I deserve. On the, you know, on the other hand, people privately use all sorts of inappropriate language to abuse each other and amongst consenting adults everyone seems to find that okay uh just not when it's uh you know directed at uh, or, or picked up by anyone outside that sort of intimate group um I, there are better jokes out there and i think you know provoking a kind of du- sort of a dust up on twitter like that to get attention to yourself feels a, a little transparent and i think i suppose the thing i think for gervais is you know he's long since moved from being you know the up-and-coming uh, you know the the underdog style, the, you know the guy that made good by accident. He is now a massive Hollywood brand. He seems to mostly take himself incredibly seriously, and I think there's always a risk that at some point, what what, what people would you know la- laugh along with your joke now start to sort of laugh at you, or worse still, just get offended. Actually, Ellen, it seems whenever uh, you start criticising as Gervais did the the humorless PC brigade, it feels like you're losing the argument and possibly even turning into Richard Littlejohn. Well, you're certainly losing the argument uh, if you're criticising them in a humourless, non-PC fashion. I mean, I just don't think he's done anything intelligent here that makes you think, oh, maybe we should reevaluate these terms that are taboo. He's just he's just bandying them around and, and then go, oh, you don't like it? Oh, what's wrong with you then? To my mind, maybe there is a greater sophistication that I have failed to understand. Well, we'll keep looking for it. On that note, we bring things to a close. As usual, you can leave all your feedback on everything you've heard on our blog. That's guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk. Or you can send Ricky Gervais a message on Twitter. <laughs> My thanks to Helen Zaltzman and Dan Saber. Media Talk is produced by Jason Phipps. I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. The Guardian.